morning, as you heard the text read, there are several pieces here that probably come to mind from passages that we've already explored through the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, it kind of seems to be a bit uh, right up my alley. It's repetitious. So that's right in my wheelhouse. So I, I make good usage of the repeating words and repeating stories and repeating themes, as my wife attests. That's who I am in my DNA. So, um, but you see it as well, and so you're entering my arena as we get to share and belaboring a few points together, my joy, your burden. But we'll do that together. And here, he's doing it in a little bit of a, a different way. Of course, I appreciate the nuance. And that is, again, he's taking stock, as it were, um, at the 100,000-foot level. So he's kind of covered the, his quests um, the man's burden that always lies heavy on him, uh, the way in which he's operating in his life in a very horizontal manner uh, to the exclusivity of the vertical. He's, he's pursuing what he continuously makes mention of here, life under the sun. A- and so kind of he's talking to that marketplace audience often throughout, that is his primary audience, kind of in there, and, and I don't say this simply because this is where we are, but largely the marketplace of, of young kind of entrepreneurial spirited individuals. Uh, and again, I don't say it because of us, but I say it because genuinely so. It is that he would primary audience would be somewhere in their mid-20s, mid-30s kind of pursuing uh, the marketplace. So he's largely speaking to that audience uh, within view. And, and, and then there's, he's challenging them based on questions uh, that he inserts regularly that are rhetorical. Uh, kind of getting into the mind of one that he observes, and then he's provoking the questions in order to address the seeker um, of life under the sun apart from God, and he's pointing out its meaninglessness. Now he steps back at kind of a broader level also and takes some of his observations, and he begins to drive them a little more particularly as we've witnessed from 7, 8, and now into 9, a little bit more pointedly toward one who would be considered a believer. So one who is within this audience, but also is this person he's been describing for a couple of chapters now, here and there, this one who fears God. So I trust that is our audience uh, this morning as we proceed with the preacher's thoughts here in chapter 9. There is one particular observation that he wants to drive home this morning that he begins with that he is utterly confident about. So as he speaks forward, um, he, he's hitting this recurring theme. And, and it's, it's and again, it began in 7 and 8 and 9, and he'll repeat it as he goes forward from this point. But he is utterly confident that when he looks out at kind of a squirrely situation in the world. It's very complex, a lot of moving parts, a lot of injustice taking place, a lot of hard things. He remains utterly confident of this one. And that is, he remains utterly confident that it will go well with the righteous in the life hereafter. He's utterly confident of that. So, so he, he sees these aspects in society, and he sees them kind of taking place in, in the kingdom. And, and when man had power over another man to his harm and hurt, he sees the oppression where you go to Lady Justice and there isn't because there's corruption. And, and your head is spinning left and right. He remains utterly confident about this. If I can't solve this situation because it isn't unto the wise to absolutely know everything. He's covered that again and again and again. So, okay then, fine. I remain utterly confident about this though. In the hereafter, it will go well with the righteous. This he is committed to. 
Now, again, we might want to insert there in the idea of ultimacy. That is, he speaks not in time as the one who continues to see to seem to lose his life by righteousness now. <clears throat> and again, he's surrendering that to providence. But it doesn't shake his confidence about how it goes well with him after. So he's speaking of ultimacy here. So notice how he makes this clear by his reference in 9.1, where he begins this obs- observation about the righteous. As he speaks again to you this morning, I trust, to an individual who is having their faith, resting in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as its true object, he who saves and saves alone. Uh, verse 1, notice his observation. But all this I laid to heart. And, and this, if you weren't able to be with us at this point, this is every, all of his observations at this point. He's standing back. Again, all this I laid to heart, examining it all. And, and he inserts this, this description here, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. So again, you, you notice here, he describes kind of, Those who are the righteous, and and it's worth noting who he's describing as the righteous, because he did make the distinction between those who are self-righteous and those who fear God. Those two things are not equal as in the righteous individual is the one who's self-righteous and fears God. It is the one who abandons self-righteousness and fears God. That individual is a God-fearing person, rightly said to be a righteous individual by the righteousness of another. This we call the gospel. So he describes here that the righteous and the wise that he's going to speak to this morning, I trust you, is a genuine, true believer in Christ. Now again, I put that in the Old Covenant text here where you say, where is Jesus Christ? And again, right, but we're talking on a long-term view here that Christ did indeed atone for all the sins of God's people in Old and New Covenants. The sufficiency of forgiveness is built on one. Messiah. So it is here, they who are accounted righteous, also God fears, are those who Christ has paid their penalty and their debt. There is only but one Savior. There is only but one means of redemption. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. So here, this is a God fearer in Old Covenant, one who responds by faith to the data he receives from the Lord. This is who he's describing. Notice, I'll show you just a little bit because, again, to show this is not his simplistic kind of view of a self-righteous individual. But he's describing as he steps back, I'm saying truly, the righteous, those who love God, truly by faith, they love the Lord. They, they, They rest in his accomplishments. They trust in God. These are the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Notice this description that is a genuine believer. Look back in 7.18. He's beginning to describe them this way, that that, that the wise, that the righteous here are indeed, not self-righteous, but receive righteousness by the hand of another through faith. Verse 15, in my vain life, that is chapter 7, in my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked who prolongs his life, By the time you get down to verse 18, he describes more clearly the true, genuine one who is righteous. Not the one who is perishing his righteousness according to his own self-deeds, but verse 18, he describes more clearly what we're dealing with in 9. 
it is good that you should take hold of this. And from this would not hold, hold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of these schemes. And we explored these schemes earlier. Here I just cite for you who he's describing in chapter 9 is who he described in 718, the one who fears God, righteous by another, not righteous by himself or his merits. One more description. If you look in chapter 8, he's continuing to develop this. In chapter 8, look at verses 12 and 13. So that we get a clear picture of who he's addressing this morning as we begin to address the same audience this morning here. Verse 12. Though a sinner die or does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know. Right? So th- this is the observation he's making in 9.1 as well. Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. Again, this is an old covenant text language of those whose faith lies in God. By the time we get to chapter 9, verse 1, he says, but all this I laid to my heart, examining all. How the righteous, not self-righteous, but those whose faith rests in God and the wise and their deeds, that is their life lived under the sun. They are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. You can't untangle all the aspects of life. Both are before him. God knows the end from the beginning. He knows the man's measured life. And I'm convinced that it will go well with the believers in the hereafter. Now, with that brief introduction on who the audience is, hopefully through all of that I've convinced you. If not, just trust me. It, it, it is an individual, again, that is not the man of seven early chapter 7, who is self-righteous, but a man who is truly righteous by fear of the Lord. This individual, I trust again this morning, is the audience primarily I speak to. Those whose faith is receiving all of and resting solely in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believers. Because now the text, as he observes, as he speaks to you or thinks of you and makes his examining all of the data lecture to you, he wants to instruct you on a few pieces of your life lived daily with bookends on the text as reminders. So we'll look at the text kind of as the books on the shelf. And then we have a bookend that's holding them up on this side and a bookend that's holding them up on this side. These bookends in this text, before we actually read the books on the shelf, the book ends themselves, is the matter of death. This is the context within which he wants you to consider reading the books on the shelf, gleaning the data. Not without context, but with a very particularized context. View your life today based on this context that you cannot get out of. You are the books on the shelf with the bookend squeezing you in. And the bookend squeezing you in, upholding your existence, is the reality of death. Notice how he does so as he speaks to you, a righteous individual. That is, I trust one again whose faith receives all of and rests solely in the Lord Jesus Christ. He speaks very um, forthwith toward you. Verse 2, notice what he says to each of us this morning with this book end beginning what he's about to tell us. Verse 2, it is the same for all. So he's confident of one thing. It will go well with you in the hereafter. I'm unshakable on that. 
I'm unsha- I know that that is the case, period. But I will tell you this, it is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to the one, him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice, as is the good, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done where? In what theater? In what context? Under the sun. At the same event, under the sun, life lived. The same event happens to all. This is your bookend. Listener, this is your bookend. You're about to then enter into the data, but he has to have you understand this bookend holding you upright. The context within which your life takes place is the reality of death. You have to grasp this so that you live well. So you'll get the data. You'll understand it. You'll glean its insight if you grasp first the context you live in, and that is the looming reality of death. It happens to everybody. This is the equalizer. Also, the hearts of children of men are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. So again, he's been describing this since the middle of chapter 8 as well. The issue of man's depravity. The heart condition of fallen man. Verse 4. But he who, rejo- who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. I know you came this morning simply to hear that phrase. And figure out what is going on there. But I press you further. Verse 5. For the living know that they will die. But the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward for their memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. That is, they have no more share in what they bank their entire existence upon. They got no more share in it. Everything that they work for perished with them. This is the reality of where life has been lived in the knowledge of death. You see, right there in the bookends of the text, he puts forward that death is no respecter of persons. Do you, by faith, or by experience even, receive that? And is it life-shaping? I'm not saying, and neither is he, be obsessed with death. I think we've maybe met a few people along the way, that folks that we know, maybe like, you know, everything is a major issue, and they're always on the brink of death, perhaps. And, and the internet has been no aid to those folks. Now you look up WebMD and you are dying. Just, it just whatever be, whatever you search, you're dying. Just, it's confirmed. Okay, great. It's an equalizer. It is no respecter of persons. Every person that searches WebMD is equally dying. It's no respecter of persons. It doesn't matter what house you, you sat in when you searched it, whether it was in shady side or, or not. It's no respecter of persons. Every person finds the same return. He gives a brief list of this just in case you're doubting it. He puts forward the righteous and wicked. That covers pretty much the gamut. He presses yet further the good and the evil. Do, do you grasp? It's, an equal, it's no respecter of person. It happens to everyone. You, as in you, me, as in Adam, me, death will happen. 
clean, unclean, obedient, disobedient, the oath taker and the word breaker. The same event happens to all, every single individual. Death. Well, then what are you supposed to do with this? Kind of, what, what, what's, what's he saying then? So, so I just need to live in the fear and the, and, the, and the haunting thoughts of death my whole life? It ought to shape me? What's, what, what motivates you each morning? Death. That's what I was taught. Death motivates me. No, not necessarily. That's not what he's driving at. But neither is the thought that then here and now in the horizons under the sun, you're going to live forever. It's a reality that is undeniable. It is there and shouldn't be pressed off into the non-existent. It does come into reality and it does come into play. So then how do you, how, what, what's the point of reflection for me then? If it's not supposed to be like haunting, and I'm not supposed to be just motivated by sheer fear, then, then, then what's the point of reflection? We'll, we'll look in verse 4 where he jumps out out of the madness of men's hearts where he does say everything happens to everyone the same in the end. You're going to die. Then what do I do in life? What do, I, what do I do now? How does this shape or motivate? What am I supposed to take from this and reflect upon? Verse 4, but he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. What does that mean? But, but, so so you, we'll, we'll think about the point of reflection. You know what he just said to you. You're going to die. But what you do in time is you join all the living. So, so you live while you do live. You live. You, you, you get up. You're motivated. You're living your life while the reality of death shapes how you live your life. But you don't stop living because you're going to die. I'm going to lock the doors, pull the shade, shut the lights off because it's inevitable. No, no, no. no. The, the wise are shaped by this and they join the living. They have hope. They live well. Look, look at how he describes it by he concludes this thought, uh, right? So he, he concludes like, you might not be the top of the food chain perhaps, but you're alive and living. No matter where your context is, you're wise and you're joining the living with hope because you're a God-fearer. Verse 5, for the living know what? They know they will die. That, that, that they know it. It's not that they suppress the truth, but they live within it. But the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. You see, this is the mark of the god fear. This is the mark of the wise. Verse 5, they know they will die. They're cognizant of it. And it doesn't shackle them, but it shapes them. You see, the wise will choose to grasp the undeniable truth, and they will seek wisdom and prepare for life after death. This is what the wise will do with the reality of what he said. Death is coming. The wise will not deny it, try to rewrite it, or pretend it won't happen. Neither will they sit in their chair and be chained to it to think it's just going to happen, so I might as well give up. No, it shapes how they join the living. They will lay it to heart. That is, in contrast, the foolish individual 
or that is others, will think of this reality, or perhaps they will have it looming heavily upon them, and they will seek to numb the impulse. They will seek to simply do away with its reality. Not with the wise. Not with the God-fearer. Not with he who knows it will go well with the righteous in the hereafter. They will live well while they do live. Those who are not wise, those who are not the God-fearers, will oftentimes neglect this reality that is looming and numb themselves to it, create a parallel existence with whatever intoxicant you need, digital or substance, and do away with the reality of death, at least as far as they need to deal with it and address it. We've seen this again and again through the book of Ecclesiastes. Anecdotally, I provided a couple of testimonies along the way of how indeed the reality of death lies heavy upon the human heart. No matter where you're coming from, the reality of death is there. Again, you will choose to either intoxicate against it or create a digital parallel universe that you can kind of protect yourself or insulate yourself from it so that the so there's a buffer zone around you so that you can constantly put it off and put it off and put it off numb yourself to its reality and somehow convince yourself that it won't occur to you or the wise will lay it to heart and join the living they won't pretend it doesn't happen but they won't be fearful of it either they will live their life indeed while they do live anecdotal testimony a couple of times. It was a few weeks back. I read for you the, uh, a portion of a memoir from Tolstoy. And, and I, just, I won't go all back into that, but I just give you the anecdotal evidence that we've examined already to this point about the reality from two different, totally different spheres. One was a simple kind of filmmaker, another individual, and again, these are anecdotal, but representative, another whole other field of a philosophical writer. So, so whether you're deeply contemplative and you're meditating on these things and you're trying to find out the me- beginnings, origins, and means of the universe from their beginning, from their end, you're over here with your pipe and your chair and it's just the mood and the lighting is just perfect and all you do is sit and think. Or if you're over here and you, and you hit slapstick comedy, you make irreverent movies, or you're just a clown and a jokester. Either which way, anecdotal, yes, but evidence, sure, that the reality of death lies on every man. So it is that Tolstoy wrote, I reached this despair of the reality of death, not once, not twice, but tens and hundreds of times. And then deep despair sets in about the existence of living. You see, his point, I, I think when I hear about death and I, and I meditate upon it, it so cripples me that I despair of living. Because it just gets me closer to the inevitable end. So I just would rather quit living because of the thought of dying. That's what the preacher said would occur. But the wise will lay it to heart and join the living. So it is on a filmmaker side, flip over. um, And I think it was a citation from Woody Allen in an interview in a magazine where he spoke about life this way. And I briefly cite for you, again, yet anecdotal Yes, but, but, but sure, um, truth, that, that, that the burden of death and its reality lies on every heart, no matter the spectrum. Quote, only the big questions of life matter. And the answers to the big questions are severely depressing. 
So, so when it's all said and done and the cameras go down and the studio's put away and I'm back at my mansion, what burdens me are the big questions that burden you. You get it, I get it. That's all that really matters is the answer there. That's, that's it. But yet I would say to you the answer to the big questions is severely depressing. So what was his solution? Again, um, was it to join the living with wisdom? humility, faith that rests in and receives all of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. No, it was, my advice to you is live as distracted as possible. This is the mark of the text, so I move this morning with this same thought. With bookend one firmly established, I hope, death is inevitable, and the thought of meditation that you are as a God-fearer to receive from this is to join the living with hope. The wise, that is the God-fearer, knows he will die. She knows she will die. She knows this. And yet she knows it will go well with her. So too does the man of wisdom. Knows this will go well with him. In the hereafter. This, I stood back and I examined it all and I laid this to heart and I'm utterly convinced of this. The deeds of the righteous are in the hands of God. So what does he say to you this morning? A little bit different and a little bit nuanced this morning. What, what is his encouragement to you? Now you're in, if I could kind of put back up on the, the mental screen, bookend, books, bookend. Now we're joining the data in the books. This is what you're supposed to now with that firmly established. You know it's there. That pillar of death is there. Read the books. Get the data. Be shaped by the information and the words of encouragement and direction going forward then. With that as a fixed reality, I'm going to die. Great. Got that out of the way. We're all dying. Now let's get to living. This is the data of the text. He pushes you, a believer, a little bit harder than he's pressed you yet. Notice what he says next in the text, verse 7. So he kind of goes down through this idea of the bookend. He jumps us, uh, pushes us into verse 7, and that is go. This is your first of five imperatives. Imperative simply meaning command. Right? So, so he uses five imperatives here within this short word of exhortation to you, which he has not done to you yet within the scope of the entire um, sermon with the scope of the entire lecture series. He has not struck you this forcefully with the use of mood in language yet. And he's striking you with five imperatives right here. Now, he's mentioned this similar thought five times, but not in a scale of five imperatives boiled down into two verses. He is, in other words, urgently pushing you. I get it, eat, drink, be married. No, 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 no. I don't think you do, is what he is saying. Go. The wise will lay this to heart. I'm going to die, and they won't despair. They will know their deeds are in the hand of their God, and they will live with all their might while they do live. So he says, go, eat your bread, enjoy. So, so, so if I could list out the, no, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me work through the text real quick. Go, eat your bread in joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Again, here's not a word on license, like, all right. As in, God's already approved it. Does it do, you know, 
what are you doing? God's already approved it. Don't, don't, don't worry about me. That's not what he's saying here, as in, as in throw all biblical uh, command out. All, all, all fruit of spirit, just toss, like as in the idea of he's already got you. No, 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 that's not what he's describing here. What he is describing is, again, you'd arc it back very quickly to the entire address, which is to the godly, to the righteous, to the wise. That is, to the God-fearer. That is, your deeds will go with you well. God has approved, your faith rests in and receives all of the work of Christ alone. So, so live. Live well. Let me finish this thought in the text. Verse 8, let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. This individual who is not always sitting back and mourning the experience or the thoughts of dying. But rather, instead of that, uh, instead of doing so, verse 9, enjoy, enjoy life with the wife, with, uh, with, with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. There is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in the grave to which you are going. So I want to touch on those five imperatives just quickly. If you, uh, I want to note them out for you so you can kind of meditate upon them. The first one, again, of the word of urgency is this first imperative is go, which then belongs to it, eat. So, so you can kind of hear him speak like me. Go, eat, drink, enjoy, and do it. Those are your five imperatives pushing you to live meaningfully while you do live. Not as some way to get out of the thought of death. Don't use life as a means to somehow insulate yourself, think of yourself as immortal, or do away with the meditation of the reality of death and dying. Don't use life that way. Live life. Because you know you will die. And yet you know God has approved you. Not because of your deeds. He covered that in chapter 7. But because of your faith. That rests in he who justifies the ungodly. Go. (laughs) Live. This is how he speaks. I want to cover three aspects of daily life. Uh, where he kind of hits us with the slogan a little bit, if we would think of it, to not merely survive, but to thrive in our living. There's three of them, principally, I want to touch on quickly with us this morning. And this is, again, the book data, and and, and it's motivated by the book end. And I didn't get to the second end, but perhaps we'll touch on it, verse 11 and 12. But here is the data, with this firmly fixed, as a believer, there's three aspects of daily life. Here in this text that he is urging you with five imperatives to do. The first one, how to live meaningfully as a believer in time. Um, Firmly fixed that you will die, yet it will go well with you when you do go. How then should I live? And that is number one, live meaningfully at dinner time. I mean it. That's what he's saying. Live meaningfully 
at dinner time. Of course, the scope of the text and the thought that he throws out there is broader than that. I narrow it down for us to consider something very real that we experience each and every day, and that is dinner time. Live meaningfully there. How so? Well, you see it quite obviously in the first portion of verse 7. Go, eat your bread in joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. It's odd that we'd have to be encouraged to do so. But how often do we neglect mealtimes as experiences? How often do we simply see it as a means to an end of getting our bellies full? Experience is empty. Perhaps no experience at all. Maybe if something tastes pretty good, we'll throw out a comment here or there. But either way, it's just passing in the wind. There's nothing substantive going on. He says, don't do that. Enjoy your dinner time. How can we broaden this thought of experiential dinner time? Spend time. I jotted down just a couple of thoughts. Spend time enjoying your spouse, your children, and your friends at the table. Converse. Now, those of us with little children understand the dynamics that are at work there. There's a lot of moving parts at dinner time. Uh, You know, it'd be easier if we called them to troughs and we slid the food down like this and they all just lined up in their corrals. Like, you know, everyone gets in there and fits their head right through there and just eats right out of there, you know. And we stood at the other end with wipes as each one funnels out. Schmear, go to your schmear, you know. But um, so it takes work. Maybe that's why we have to be told to do so. Meal times are invaluable opportunities. They are um, with your spouse. And particularly, that's something to think about if you're young, married, without children. It's oftentimes filled with television time, which is, you know, easy, easy living, right? But maybe the thought that we ought to do is sit and be together. Um, you're like, right, we are around the TV. <laughs> no, right, right, kind of, sure. My point being, mealtimes are invaluable opportunities to grow in listening. That is, cultivate the skill of listening. How to ask questions. You know, have you ever have you ever spent time kind of thinking through how can I how can I provoke this person to tell me more data? Not so that I can record it or put it somewhere, so that I can meaningfully engage with them. They're invaluable at meal times to learn to talk, talk well, to tell stories that matter. Again, there's quite a level of what matters to everyone at the table, isn't there? Again, speaking to us with kids, you know, they think a lot of weird things matter, and. (laughs) But it substantively does. It matters. Mealtimes are invaluable times to learn to conversate and to teach them to learn to conversate as well. There was one little study I wanted to share with you out of that, this thought, just to burden everyone who is on the cusp of having their first child. Um, Some of us are down the road a little bit, um, and and those who have already had children and passed through this, uh, uh, kudos to you. There was a little study out of the University of Stanford recently that studied 200 hours of recordings from four different children talking in conversation with their primary caregiver. You know what the response was? I was sitting through, which was interesting as well, the researchers, kudos to them, listening to 200 hours of four different children uh, speak, just share. Just sit and vent. Share out what they're seeing. And it was this. Each one of the children asked one to three questions per minute. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about, Parker family. You know how it goes. That is, 
the summary to the study was that 40,000 questions are offered by children between the ages of two and five. So if you're about to have one, get ready. You, you've got a 40,000 question exam coming. And they think, they do, they think you know everything. Cement that in their minds for when they get out and they think you know nothing. Because th- it's the great reversal. So get them now. There's nothing you can't answer because they're asking. But how often we just miss opportunities to hear them ask. We might think they ask one question. Not mine. Mine asks like one question. You only hear one. They're thinking the lights are always on. Mealtime. Everyone has to eat. They eat all day. They have to eat. Use it. Use it. Live meaningfully at dinner time. The second portion out of the text is quite straightforward, a way to cultivate believing lives as we, as we live our life with the reality of death to give attention to things that really matter. That is, the second portion is live meaningfully in your marriage. Live meaningfully in your marriage. As you drop down from the one who is seizing life, who, who, who has their, their garments always being white, oil not lacking on their head, those who are not mourning but rejoicing, yet, yet with the reality of life lived, not overly simplistically, the encouragement to them is, again, that imperative of verse 9, enjoy. It's not like you might get around to enjoying. It's a command of an imperative. Enjoy life. Not randomly, but within the context of the wife whom you love. And, and, and don't enjoy it for a moment, but all the days of your vain life. Right? Your life is still, it, it, it is passing like a shadow. It is a momentary marriage. It isn't without its toil. Notice each and every time he encourages us, it is within the te- context of toil. It's not like if you do this, as often presented, then your toil will not be there. If you do this, you can get rid of your toil. The, uh, as, as the preacher says, the burden lies heavy upon man always. So it's not a means to get away from toil. It's a way to live well within the context of life, which is toil. Live well in your marriage. Do you notice the little assumption of the text, though? Read the verse 9 carefully. I want you to notice the assumption here, because he puts forward another one in verse 10. If we read the text real straightforward, like verse 9, enjoy the life, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Think about the nuance just for a moment. What is the assumption of the text? Again, he's not telling me to do something here. He's assuming I'm already there. The assumption is that you love your wife. Right? Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Well, I don't love my... The the assumption of the text is you do. So the text would read similarly like this. If we put it in its assumption and we put it right down into language, the preacher would assume it this way. Since you love your wife, assumption, enjoy life with her, command. 
I just want to put forward just one small little word on that um, thought of living a meaningfully in marriage. And that is, men, we must grasp, that one, the assumption of the text is that it's a Christian assumption. You love your wife. It's, it, it, we jump to Ephesians 5, uh, husbands, love your wives. This, if we go to Peter, husbands cultivating the love for their wife. Here he says, live well with the wife you love. So it is to say a little bit further, if we were to press the, the assumption a little bit further, I want to just share to affirm, this is, I want us to kind of meditate on this um, for this point, to affirm one's love for one's wife. Okay, so, so, you, so the assumption of the text is that you do. Men, by grace, you're standing, you're saying, I, I am affirming that assumption. Okay, so let's, let, let's do that then. We're affirming one's love for one's wife. I, I'm doing so by grace. This then means also, so, so there's an affirmation, and with every affirmation there is a necessary denial. I affirm the love for my wife that ought be mine as a Christian husband. I therefore, secondly, deny thoughts, images, and feelings that are cultivated from desires for any other woman. This is an affirmation and a denial. I affirm the preacher's call upon me as a Christian husband to love my wife. Therefore, I will sign unto the denial the thoughts, images, and feelings that are cultivated from any other thread in desiring another woman. I will deny them. Because I'm commanded to love my wife and enjoy my life with her. This is my lot. This is what God has given me. Live meaningfully at dinner. Live meaningfully in marriage. And the third final piece of our text this morning is living meaningfully, uh, I say it like this, in everything else. How about that? Or, or I jot down here, productivity. Um, live meaningfully in productivity. I want you to see, we'll read the text and then note the assumption as well for our concluding time. Verse 10, he just kind of pushes us finally, and we're reading the last volume on the bookshelf. We're about to hit the last book and just be brief, but we're, li we're reading the last volume, and that is, it, it covers everything we didn't cover in the first few volumes. Whatever your hand finds to do. Here's the imperative. Do it with all your might. And then look at the categories. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in death to which you are going. So, so back to the entire industry and complex of a man's life or a woman's life. Do whatever it is you're doing with all your might. Live life meaningfully. 
I want to note for you here just in a little more brief than last, but the assumption of the text. And the assumption is in the first portion of the verse. Whatever your, fa- your hand finds to do. The assumption of the text is that you work. Whatever you find to do implies you're doing. You're an industrious individual. You're living. You're not letting it go by. You're not lazy. You're driven on to do. You're working. You're cultivating skills, capacities to think and jot down, to share, to encourage, to be productive, gaining income, to bless and encourage others. You're working. So do it well. It isn't if you find, notice the text, isn't if you find something for your hand to go do. It's whatever you do. Do it with all your might. He clearly here assumes within the canon, so within the text of Scripture, at this point in the covenant, he clearly assumes the fourth commandment. We have covered the Ten Commandments ways back, and I won't rehearse all of it, But simply this, you're mindful, the fourth commandment of which he assumes for each and every individual in here, six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh is the Sabbath unto the Lord your God. We go into that text and we recognize that the Lord did provide and indeed design us, provide for us and design us to be people of productivity. To work, to cultivate to subdue. He's outfitted each one with particular gifts, skills, and assets whereby you bring glory to him as you employ them. This is not if you find something to do. It's whatever you're doing because you are doing. Do it well. Do it meaningfully. Don't be lazy. Enjoy your industry. It's thoughtful, therefore, industry. Is there a command upon me to be able to enjoy my industry? I can't press it that far. Because again, that's somewhat external to me. I can only control what I can control and my industry of which I am in. I need to enjoy my life within it. I need to live meaningfully and that means with productivity. I just want to conclude the text then, as he says once again, the bookend. Once you get out of this kind of, you live with the reality of death, you, you live meaningfully every mealtime. So when you go to lunch today, when you have dinner tonight, when you think about your week and you plan your meal schedules, just think, I want to have a meaningful dinner. I'm going to ask, and I'm going to be asked. And that's what we're going to do. Because I want to enjoy my glass of wine well, with my children around me, and with friends at the table. I'm going to live meaningfully in my marriage by denying that which would steal the affirmation that I have made that I love her. And I want to live well at my job, at whatever it is I guess I'm doing. I want to live well. And that is because he puts the last bookend on it. Verse 11, again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift. This is, again, his his 100,000 observation, nor the battles to the strong nor bread to the wise necessarily, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to all of them. That is, this is how it appears on man's stage, that, it, that it's time and chance. 
But this is what he drives home for you to be motivated by, to remember and call to mind often as you think of dinner, marriage, and life. Verse 12, for man does not know his time. That, that needs, that, that's the bookend. And the wise will lay this to heart. And they'll live lives that matter. This is their lot. These are their children. This is their church. This is their job. And they will live meaningfully by faith in it. Because they do not know their time. Final comment of the text, it suddenly falls upon them. I know it's cliched, but you could die tomorrow. It falls suddenly. So live meaningfully. Let's pray. Father, we just ask for your grace and endeavoring by faith to live meaningfully before you. That we take those gifts that you have given and desire to honor you with them, using them as you have provided to impact one another, to encourage one another, to live well with one another, to take seriously our toil and our burden that lies heavy upon us, not neglect it, but live joyfully by faith within it. That means the simplicity of life that you've even provided us, that we need to eat. May we use it for your glory. You've given us offspring to raise. Might we take time to be with them? You've given us skills and assets to be productive. Might we employ them well? With the thought of death always there, yet knowing when we are judged, our faith that has received all of and rests squarely in the Lord Jesus Christ will prevail and it will go well with those cloaked in his righteousness. We ask all this in his name. Amen.